friends, we just wanted to pop on real quick and let you know that Willing and Fable is hosting a giveaway. The randomly selected winner of this giveaway will have a $50 donation made in their name to the organization of their choosing, either the Bail Project, the NAACP, the OKRA Project, the ACLU, or Black Lives Matter. What do people have to do to enter this giveaway, Tracy? All you have to do to enter is rate, comment, and subscribe to Willing and Fable on Apple Podcasts. Where will we announce the winner? We're announcing the winner on July 1st on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. So keep your eyes peeled, rate, review, and subscribe, and we'll see you soon. Okay? All right, we should say it. We're recording this episode for the second time. Tracy is sitting in an overheated closet, and I <laughs> am holding a frozen solid chicken breast in my burned hand. So So you can you could say that we are surviving, not thriving at the moment. Ugh. My resting heart rate is 95 right now, so. It went down! <laughs> it went down, went down two, two beats per minute. It's still in the fat burn zone, though. Fat burn zone. Okay, so under normal circumstances, I don't think I'd go here. But for this purpose, on the optimistic side, at least you're basically working out. I know. That's, that's what I was saying. There was one time I was really, really, really sick with a, a cold, and my heart rate would be like 110 to 120 just from standing up. And I was like, man, this is the easiest way to work out ever, huh? <laughs> um, I, I healed up. I'm fine. But anyway, the one sitting in the overheated tiny, tiny closet is Tracy Harrison. And the one holding the frozen chicken breast on her burned up hand is Rowan Hall. <laughs> and we, we too, are the <laughs> Willing and Fable podcast where we talk about ancient myths, local legends, and why stories have staying power. Thank you for joining us. We hope this can be your fun escape from the world now that we're done complaining about our situations. And we are going to be talking to you today about the second sin in our Seven Deadly Sins series. Today, we're talking about sloth. Now, Rowan. Yes. You might ask. I'm asking. What is sloth? Oh, my God. Thank you for asking. (laughs) So grateful. So to quote the Wikipedia page about sloth. Oh, yeah. Bring it, girl. That middle school essay. <laughs> let's go. Oh, you know they never let us use Wikipedia in middle school, which is why as an adult, it's my main resource. Really? I have so much hesitation every time I click to it because of middle school. It's so well managed now. I, 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 I am a big fan of Wikipedia. So Oh, yeah, me too. Quote. But I have deeply ingrained fear. That someone's going to give me a bad grade or or if we're on the computers in the computer lab and we click it and they come over and get mad at you. <gasps> they would. They would get so mad. Like, that doesn't count as a source. And also you need to use two books as your source. What's a book? I don't know. I'm kidding. I used a book <laughs> in the last episode, so no one get mad. Okay. We both love to read. So anyway, to quote the Wikipedia page about sloth. It is the most difficult sin to define and credit as a sin. 
since it refers to an assortment of ideas dating from antiquity and including mental, spiritual, pathological, and physical states. One definition is a habitual disinclination to exertion or laziness. So that is the Wikipedia description, which I know we both agree with the idea that how do you even define what sloth is? It comes from the Latin term Acadia, um, which means without care. So in Latin, using A in front of something can often mean without this thing. So it is without care. Though sometimes people will differentiate between spiritual, physical, mental, emotional, and religious sloth. According to the book, Experiencing Spirituality, Finding Meaning Through Storytelling, the most accurate translation of Akedia is actually self-pity, because it conveys both the melancholy of the condition and self-centeredness upon which it is founded. I don't want to ruin your flow, but you did just quote a book, so you're doing great. Thank you so much. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe I'm thriving now. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so according to the Catechism of the Catholic Church... Book number two. Report done. (laughs) Y'all, I'm going to get an A on my book report. So according to the Catechism of the Catholic Church, Akedia or spiritual sloth, goes so far as to refuse the joy that comes from God and to be repelled by divine goodness. A large part of what makes sloth a sin is not the laziness of the body, but a turning away from religious duties, the obligation of the individual to God, goodness, and church, all being shunned. If you translated the sin into capitalism, it would be an individual no longer laboring to feed the God of the free market. Another form of sloth you might see more today. So those are kind of the quick ways to define sloth. The other way that I want to add before Rowan jumps in with some of her ideas is that I think a big way to think about sloth is a refusal to help oneself. Um, And we can talk about that more after Rowan jumps into her mini- her mini myth. No, don't give it away. Oh, okay, whatever. I'm so excited. So, here's the deal. Our myth topic, I am about to postulate, is a myth in and of itself. I am going to reference Psychology Today's article on the seven reasons why laziness is a myth. I think today, most often, the word that we attribute to sloth is laziness, just generalized lack of willpower to accomplish a task. And when I googled the phrase sloth myth, aside from some really awesome videos of actual sloths, (laughs) I found so many of those too. Google gave me this and I'm really excited about it. So we're jumping from the Judeo-Christian teachings to a small piece of Buddhism. The Buddhist word dhaka describes the nagging dissatisfaction and unease that follows the various disappointments of everyday life, to quote Mike Sturm. In his article for Medium, Sturm acknowledges that this disappointment is often the trigger that causes us to view others as lazy. He goes further to say that calling someone lazy is a lazy thing to do. I'm really glad we're talking about this at the time 
of quarantine. Mm -hmm. We are recording this in quarantine land. I cannot promise you will be hearing this in quarantine land, but I'm sure it will still be on your brain. So the dictionary definition of lazy is a disinclination to expend effort or energy. Often when we see people aren't putting in the effort we feel they should, that causes disappointment, which leads us to passing a character judgment that someone is lazy. But if you explore further than the knee-jerk desire to label, it can be something as simple as two people having different values or behavior that has underlying causes. Licensed clinical social worker Laura D. Miller lists seven causes behind procrastination and avoidance. Fear of failure, fear of success, fear of expectations, desire for nurture, need for relaxation as a means of passive-aggressive communication, and depression. So if we look at laziness or the sin of sloth as a symptom of a problem rather than the problem in itself, we're in a totally different place when we start these myths. Yeah, absolutely. It's I I'm glad you gave that list because I have I could have been described as lazy for at least four of them. Fear of failure, fear of success, need for relaxation, and depression. I have experienced all of those things. The one that does confuse me a little bit, though, is passive-aggressive communication. All right, I have an example for you. This is pulling directly from the Psychology Today article, though it is not an exact quote. In it, Miller describes an instance where... Uh, let's say, a wife who usually uh, performs the role in the family of cooking dinner. Uh, She has stopped cooking dinner and has stopped engaging in sexual activity with her spouse. Now, her spouse might say, that's laziness on her part, but actually the wife is doing these things to send the signal that she is not being fulfilled by her relationship or not receiving enough attention. It's not a perfect means of communication. It might not even be, well, it's definitely not a healthy means of communication, (laughs) but it is a thing that humans do. Gotcha. Okay. I also want to clarify the desire for nurture one because that really interests me. The example that was in this article was a man is going to a wedding with his, let's say, husband. And he doesn't iron his shirt before the wedding, knowing that his husband will do it for him. He's not doing it because he's too lazy to iron the shirt. He's doing it because when his husband does that act of service, it makes him feel nurtured. Hmm. Okay, so the items on these lists aren't described in any way as good or bad. It's just an objective way to explain communications. Because I would say desire for nurture and passive-aggressive communication are both not the healthiest form of expression, 
but a totally real way that people do communicate. As someone who often exhibits what I would call lazy behavior most when I need to relax, I don't think that any of these is a really perfect way of being. That's true. I guess because they're causing procrastination and avoidance, you can inherently describe them as not the healthiest actions. Right. Says the person who's done at least four of these. Oh, yeah. Definitely at one point or another, I think everyone has. I'm not trying to tell you what you're up to, dear listener, but I'm just going to take a wild guess. Good guess. (laughs) All right, Tracy, what's your myth this week? My story for this week is one that I think many Americans have heard of, especially if you are in kind of the northeast New England part of the country. My story this week is Rip Van Winkle. Hmm. Okay. I have imperfect familiarity with this myth. I first really learned about Rip Van Winkle when I went to my cousin's wedding in Hudson, New York, which is right next door to where this takes place in the Catskills. And we drove over the Rip Van Winkle Bridge, (laughs) and I mixed it up with Dick Van Dyke. And my family hasn't stopped making fun of me since. So, (laughs) to start, Rip Van Winkle is not Dick Van Dyke. Thank you for that clarification. Anytime. I'm really happy to clear that up for anyone else who might say something stupid in front of their families. I hope someone is face palming right now in their kitchen or car or bed going, oh, oh, it's not the singer, tap dancer, performer. And I knew it wasn't like I knew he, I knew Rip Van Winkle wasn't actually Dick Van Dyke, but I didn't know who Rip Van Winkle was. And so my brain went a three named person with Van in the middle. Dick Van Dyke, he must also be an old actor. That was where I went. Um, I was wrong. So let's get into why. All right. If you've ever visited the Catskills in New York State, then you're familiar with the local legend of the area. Statues, murals, and even a bridge all memorialize this great American figure. This story, told by Washington Irving in 1819, is the story of Rip Van Winkle, and it is a classic American tale. Or so you'd think. Despite taking place in pre-revolutionary war, New York State, the story is actually based on an old either German or possibly Celtic folktale. This story begins in the year 1796 in the village of Catskill in upstate New York, where our main character, Rip Van Winkle, is a relatively happy man. He finds joy in wandering the woods, chatting with the locals, telling stories to children, and... Most importantly, avoiding any and all work or responsibilities. Despite his idleness, he is well-loved by the people in town who find him to be a colorful local character. His wife, however, Dame Van Winkle, is not impressed by his mirth and merriment and constantly chastises him to stop being so idle. In order to avoid her constant nagging, Rip would often take his dog, Wolf, and walk nine miles westward to the Catskill Mountains, where he would hunt, lounge, fish, drink, smoke, do whatever it was that pleased him. On one autumnal day, Rip Van Winkle makes the same trek with his dog. This time, however, he sees a strange, very short, very round man on his walk. 
The man is silent, standing in front of Rip without a word. He is wearing a steeple hat with a long, belted coat and heavy boots. However, it wasn't his clothes that drew Rip's attention. No, it was his face, green and ghastly, with unmoving eyes that glimmered in the twilight sun. The dwarven man was holding a keg and, with a wave of his arm, motioned for Rip to help him carry it up the mountain. Rip Van Winkle obliged, and he picked up the barrel and followed the strange man. As night fell, they emerged onto a plateau where Rip saw a group of even stranger men, all dressed as though they were from a time centuries past. All of them shared the same ghastly face, and not one of them spoke a single word. Instead, they all played a game, specifically the game The Nine Pins, each rolling a rock into the pins and sometimes just watching as the rock fell over the cliff edge and crashed like thunder on the way down. Rip Van Winkle was deeply unsettled and looking for a way to leave this strange place when one of the dwarves tapped the keg and offered a drink to Rip. Not one to decline such an offer, Rip took the cup and drank the most incredible schnapps he'd ever tasted, and he'd tasted plenty. He felt warm, calm, and then unbelievably sleepy. Overcome by this urge to sleep, he rested his head on a stone, stretched out his legs, and went to sleep. In the morning, sunlight spread across the earth, and the morning light warmed the air. Rip Van Winkle sat up, stretched out his arms, which were stiff from sleeping on the ground, and looked around. But his dog wolf was nowhere to be seen. Confused, he stretched out and reached for his gun. He noticed that it was rusted, and as his hand closed around it, the metal crumbled into pieces in his hand. That's when he noticed his clothes. Rotten and moldy, they fell from his body in rags. As his eyes traced over his decrepit appearance, he noticed a long, white beard falling from his chin. Even more confused and now very concerned, Rip Van Winkle stood up and felt his now old bones ache in the process. He made his way down the mountain as quickly as his stiff body would allow, and was shocked to see that the village he once knew was nothing like the one that stood before him now. The buildings, the meadows, the fields, even the people, all of them were different. Maybe this was a different place. But no, he, he knew his way too well to get lost. This was a journey he'd made many times before. So he made his way back to his home, expecting to see his wife at the gate, ready to smack him over the head and give him a stern talking to. But instead, he found an empty house that was long since abandoned. So he made his way towards the tavern where, despite the new sign, he recognized the old building. As he stepped inside, he asked about the people he knew from the village, and one by one, he's told they are long since dead. Some died in a strange war. Another townsperson asked Rip Van Winkle how he voted in the recent election. Voted, Rip thought. What could he mean? I am a faithful subject of King George III, he said in reply, causing shock and anger amongst the townsfolk. 
Anger spread through the tavern. Murmurs and whispers about the traitor in their midst began to spread. That is, until an old woman stood up and said she recognized Rip Van Winkle. That man, she said, is Rip Van Winkle. Impossible, cried out another. Rip Van Winkle is right over there. He pointed just outside the door, where Rip saw an image of himself when he was young and easygoing. The young man walked into the tavern just as casually as Rip used to do so often. That is young Rip, the woman explained. This is his father, the one who went into the woods 20 years ago and disappeared. Rip Van Winkle was shocked. 20 years? He'd been asleep for 20 years? As the shock slowly began to wear off, Rip realized the reality of his situation. Almost everyone he knew from that time past was long gone. His children were all grown, and the world as he knew it had completely changed. However, despite all of this, his son and daughter took him in and cared for him for the rest of his days. He resumed his idle ways and spent his days smoking pipes and drinking at the tavern, telling stories to kids and reminding them of the dangers that can lure you away within the lush, verdant valley of the Catskill Mountains. Some even say that if you climb the east front of the mountain by the old carriage road, you can see the rock upon which Rip Van Winkle slept, hollowed out by his 20 years of rest. And that is the tale of Rip Van Winkle. That was a bad day for Dick Van Dyke. I mean... (laughs) (laughs) How long ago did you think of that one? Once you said Rip Van Winkle to finish your story, I was like, ah, yes, Dick Van Dyke. (laughs) (laughs) So that version of the story that I told was inspired by Charles Skinner's retelling in 1896. So that's why it was a lot more fleshed out than the original telling you might hear. There's also some versions that say his son was just as lazy and idle as he was and that it was his daughter and her husband who took him in. But I liked the happy ending where all of his family came together. It's interesting. I never choose the happy ending. <laughs> well, so at least one of us will have a happy ending. <laughs> I can't stop thinking about the fact that even though this story is much more recent than the ones that we've told so far, mm-hmm. the fact that he is lazy, quote unquote, is much more life threatening than it yeah. would be now. Yeah. It's it's a lot. It, it affects so many more people than just him, and it affects so much more than just me not doing my dishes. You know, it's you don't get food. You don't get life-sustaining things. Yeah, there's no grocery store. You can't buy firewood at the Home Depot. All of those right. tasks, if not done, have much more immediacy than me eating mac and cheese because I don't go pick up groceries. Right, and I think that's where the idea of sloth does make more sense as a sin, is when it gets to the point where you are fundamentally, in some ways, harming the people around you because you're not participating in necessary actions for everyone to survive. Right, especially now that interactions and connections are so much more virtual, and the virtual world is very rarely affected by things like hunger and 
bodily needs, healthcare, things like that, you can still interact virtually without moving or doing anything. Yeah. And I'm going to go on a bit of a tangent because this is just something that I think about a lot because so many of our interactions are virtual. And I think during this time of quarantine, people understand it a little bit more. But for years now, if my family, my mom would call me up and say, do you want to come over for dinner? And I'd say, oh, well, I have plans with people online. That wasn't a valid reason. Hmm. Okay. Because it was online. And I think now people are starting to realize there are other people on the uh, there are people on the other end relying on you, if that makes sense. I think it's just an interesting time to see the transition of the way people think about virtual communication as becoming a much more valid form of communication. I, though, now that we're very video call based, I need people to accept my reasons that are offline to get out of the calls. When video calls last forever, I don't have any children or dogs, <laughs> so I can't go, oh, my child is screaming, or oh, my dog needs to be walked. I just end up with the excuse of, oh, I need to interact with things that are tangible. Okay, bye. <laughs> yeah, that's the other flip side that's hard. It, I, 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 there's, there's a balance to it, but anyway, I just, I just had to bring that up because it's something I think about a lot. But jumping back to Rip Van Winkle, I just wanted to mention that despite this fact that the story famously takes place in the Catskill Mountains, Washington Irving admitted later in life he had never been to the Catskill Mountains. He wrote the story while on the verge of bankruptcy, and he decided to give writing one last chance to see what would happen. And fortunately, the story was a rousing success when it was released in the United States. The tale of Rip Van Winkle went on to become a play in London in 1895, but Broadway in 1866. In 1896, Joseph Jefferson famously played Rip Van Winkle in a series of short films. So if you ever Google Rip Van Winkle, you'll probably see photographs of Joseph Jefferson with a long beard sitting on a rock in his performance as Rip Van Winkle. I would love to see a Broadway production at that time. In 1866? Can you imagine? Could you imagine? What does Broadway look like in 1866? I can guarantee that there was no massive Dwayne Reed in the middle of Times Square at that time. Past that, I know nothing. I know nothing. Yeah. So that would be a really specific but really fun time travel experience. I don't think that that is when I would choose if I could have a time travel experience, but I'm not ruling it out. <laughs> Good way to frame it. I agree. <laughs> so with Rip Van Winkle, there are far too many songs, movies, TV shows, comics, animations, poems, etc. about this character to list. But it is safe to say that this story has had a lasting impact on American storytelling. The last fact I want to share about Rip Van Winkle is that there is a bourbon named Old Rip Van Winkle produced by the Sazerac Company. And Pappy Van Winkle's Family Reserve is the flagship brand of bourbon whiskey owned by the Old Rip Van Winkle Distillery, which is distilled and bottled by the Sazerac Company. Okay, I definitely choose getting to drink those whiskeys over going back in time to yeah oh especially because they are fancy whiskeys how fancy a bottle of old rip van winkle 10 year will run you 70 dollars 
and their Pappy Van Winkle Family Reserve, so their flagship their flagship brand of bourbon, the 23-year reserve will run you $300. You're a mean woman. You got my hopes up for a new whiskey and then brought them crashing down so quickly. Let's pick a certain number of listeners to get and we will buy and share oh, yes. Kathy Van Winkle's Family Reserve 23 <laughs> year together because I am allergic to alcohol. Um, intolerant is a better way to say it, but severely, severely intolerant, except whiskey is like the one thing I can enjoy. And Rowan also adores whiskey, so we bond over whiskey. I really want to lowball this so that we can have whiskey. <laughs> I feel like it's got to be. I mean, it, we can do the um, old Rip Van Winkle ten year for our low ball. Okay. And then the twenty three year for like a big. Okay, success. okay, okay, okay. So the low ball number is two hundred subscribers. Oh my god, that's way lower than. I was gonna I, go. Yes, I want whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> what the, what the heck do you think I'm doing? Yes, I'm choosing okay. whiskey sooner rather than later. You <laughs> okay. can pick okay, okay. a highball number. I don't now. I don't know what a reasonable highball number is. Well, it's probably has to be excessive since you said mine was too low. No, I mean I like that yours is low. I want whiskey too. Is this people who have subscribed to us yes. on whatever platform? Yes, they choose. Um. Let's make it re- like let's make it lofty. Let's say if we get three thousand people subscribing. Okay. Okay. I have a personal, private, uh, timeline goal that if we hit that, then we both get new fancy tarot decks. <gasps> but I'm not telling you what it is, and probably you weren't supposed to know about it. But you know, shoot for the stars, and then maybe you get nice tarot. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I I absolutely love it. So. Lastly, with Rip Van Winkle, the one thing that I want to highlight is because this story is possibly inspired by a Celtic version given um, Irving's Scottish heritage, there is some theories, and some would argue, and I'm, I'm one of those people who would argue, that Rip Van Winkle was actually given a gift. Um, these dwarves can be kind of analogous to fairies in some of the Celtic versions of these stories where you go into a fairy ring, maybe you eat some of the fairy food. If you do emerge at all, it, the world might be 300 years later and you've aged two days, something like that. But with Rip Van Winkle, he helped the dwarves carry the keg up the mountain. And in return... He woke up after the war was over. He did not have to participate in the war. He no longer had to deal with his nagging wife, who had passed away. And he gets to be taken care of by his children for the rest of his life, while all he has to do is drink and smoke and tell stories and not be judged for it because he's an old man now. And he doesn't have to contribute to society. He's living his dream. That's a really good point that I don't think I had fully considered. Yeah, I, I think it's a much more positive way to think about the story. And it, it makes sense because he's, he's happy at the end. He gets everything he wants except for his, his dog, Wolf. But um, I like to imagine Wolf went home and lived a great life. 
I like to imagine Wolf went full Call of the Wild and never (laughs) went home and lived a full life. Either way. Either way, it's good. So so when you told me that you were doing Rip Van Winkle, which we do ahead of time so that we don't ever accidentally do the same story, um, I, A, stopped looking at anything like it because mm-hmm. I don't want to know, and I didn't really know that much about Rip Van Winkle, but I could not get out of my head the story that I knew that is from a Celtic myth book my parents used to read to me when I was little, which unfortunately I don't know the name of as it lives in my parents' bookshelf. Um, But in that story, it is a person who gets pulled into a fairy ring or the, Mm -hmm. the circle of toadstools you find on the ground in actual real life nature. And they, the fairies get them caught up in dancing, and sometimes they'll give them food, and then they get stuck. And by the time they come out, everyone they know is dead. Yeah. I think this is like an American twist on that story. Okay, Tracy. Mm-hmm. I did a thing that's going to make you giggle. Okay. <laughs> so keeping in mind that I had the Celtic story in my head, Mm -hmm. I was thinking about how in my college I had a teacher that would give us poems or bits of writing that were specifically written to be tongue twisters for our speech class. And I found a book called Popular Rhymes of Scotland by Robert Chambers. And in it, there is a poem written in what... I suppose Robert Chambers feels Scottish should be written in sort of phonetically. And it tells the story of fairy rings. Are you going to do a reading? I am going to read it to you because I think it is delightful. I am. You can't. I have like my hands under my chin. I'm like a giddy five-year-old. I'm so excited to hear this. (laughs) All right. (laughs) And I hope that this will inspire perhaps... A human who might actually, A, be familiar with the source of this poem, or B, be able to read it properly to do that. Uh, So here we go. He wha tills the fairy's green, nae luck again shall he. And he wha spills the fairy's ring, betide him wanton way. For weirdless days and weary nights are his till his D&D. But he wha gaze by the fairy ring, Nae dool nor pine shall see, and he wha cleans the fairy's ring, an easy death shall be. That was so good. Oh God, don't clap. No, but I thought it would be fun because <laughs> all of these myths come from somewhere and many somewheres, and it's interesting to see the various ways that they trickle down, including short poems and the Catskill Mountains. So. I love that. And um, I might just clip out the part where you do that reading and play it on repeat because I think <laughs> the sound of you know, a Scottish accent reading that rhyming poem and that the, the whatever rhythm you told it with, oh, just the most beautiful thing. I love it so much. Well, 200th person who probably maybe luckily subscribes to this podcast so that we can have whiskey. I hope you're from the British Isles, and you will read that poem properly and send it to us as a whiskey present. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) All right. (laughs) So that is Rip Van Winkle. Rowan, 
please share your myth with me. All right. My story today is at best, only loosely based on the theme of sloth. (laughs) Sloth makes me think of sleep. And the long and short of it is that this is our podcast and I can do what I like. (laughs) Yes, you can. I approved it. So we um, don't care what you think. Except that we hope you like the story. Also, I don't need your approval. Sorry. (laughs) Gut reaction. (laughs) Okay, here we go. I found this story. I could not get away from it. I told Tracy I was doing it, and here we are. I am going to tell you the version of Sleeping Beauty that existed before Disney made it family-friendly in 1959. We begin with the story of Sleeping Beauty that went by the name Sun, Moon, and Talia. It was one of the 50 stories included in an anthology by Italian author Giambattista Basilier. This is a 1634 book titled The Tale of Tales or Entertainment for Little Ones. It included early versions of Cinderella, Snow White, Rapunzel, and of course, Sleeping Beauty. In the 17th century, Charles Perrault used it to write Mother Goose Tales, and in the 19th century, the Brothers Grimm used it for their own work. But for this telling, we are definitely using the source material. And my friends, this is a really dark story. Our story today deals largely with themes of sexual assault. In the old times, when wishing was still effective, there lived a powerful lord who was enamored with his brand new daughter, Talia. He did not hesitate to bring all the wise men and every astrologer to the newborn's bedside to predict her future. The men met, they considered, and they came together in darkened rooms and murmured by candlelight until they were able to cast her horoscope. They said, When young Talia becomes a maiden, she will be gravely injured by a splinter of flax. Well, the powerful king would not have it. He moved with her to one of his countryside mansions and forbid flax, hemp, and similar products from entering his home. As she grew, he kept his beautiful daughter under strict watch and much preferred Talia stay at home where he could be sure no harm would befall her. It was one of these lonely days in the mansion, staring out the window into the world, that a particular sight struck Talia. Outside was an old woman. She was spinning, a craft foreign to Talia, and the distaff and twirling spindle held her in rapt fascination. She called out to the woman, inviting her into the mansion so that she might teach the princess how to do her odd work. Yes, milady, the old woman replied, bowing her head. After all, when the daughter of the king calls, you answer. So, the spinning woman came in to teach the young maiden about her work, and she was shocked that the girl wasn't practiced in spinning herself, or at least familiar with the tools. Talia held the long distaff in her hand, twirling the flax between her fingers in giddy curiosity. And so it was that the prophecy came to pass, 
a splinter of flax went under her nail, and Talia fell to the ground, instantly dead. The old woman, shocked and afraid what a guard might think, ran from the mansion. She is still running to this day. Upon finding his fallen daughter, the king was racked with grief and could not be consoled. He demanded that Talia be laid in her bed as if asleep, underneath a canopy of flowers. Then he sealed the doors to his country home and never returned again. One day, a long time later, another king happened by the mansion while out on a hunting trip. One of his falcons, the most disobedient, had flown off, and he and his party were looking for the creature. The king went to knock on the door, believing that kind inhabitants must live inside such a massive, beautiful home. He knocked and knocked, but only the sound of his pounding echoed through the empty rooms. The king demanded that his secretary bring over a vintner's ladder so that he might climb inside the home to see if anyone was about. After all, every person in the land should answer the calls of a king when he knocks. He searched every room to no avail. The entire home looked as if it was left merely for an afternoon, but the cobwebs collecting in each corner belied that story. Frustrated, and now dusty, the king entered the last room to find Talia lying in bed as if asleep. But she was not asleep, the king realized. The grave stillness of her chest and the pallid tinge to her skin proved the truth of her state, and yet the king was enraptured. He found her so beautiful that he could think of nothing else as he stood in the dark room, calling out in vain to somehow raise the girl from her deathly slumber. The blood was pounding in his veins when he went over to the bed. The king took the young maiden in his arms, and he gathered the first fruits of love. Then he left, just as easily as he'd come in. Back in his realm, he was sucked into the constant work of keeping a kingdom running and never thought of this incident again. Talia's defiled corpse lay in the cold bed in the empty mansion for nine long months. During that time, her stomach grew, and soon, two beautiful twins were born. Luckily, two fairies appeared to attend the children. They brought the burbling boy and sweet-eyed girl to their mother's breast to suckle. As is the trouble with siblings, one had luck, and the other did not. This left the girl child to sort out her own nourishment, so she began to suckle her mother's finger. She sucked with such desperation that the flax splinter came out from underneath Talia's fingernail, and she awoke. The maiden, color rising to her cheeks, breath catching in a gasp, looked down to find the two newborns in her arms. Without hesitation, she brought them to her breast, gave them the nipple to suck, and knew that these babes were more dear to her than her own life. She named them Sun and Moon, respectively. She never saw the two fairy attendants, invisible to human eyes, but they kept Talia's table filled with lush food and drink. 
It was around this time that the marauding king began to think of the beautiful woman in the empty mansion once more. He announced that he was off on another hunting trip, and as fast as his horse could carry him, he returned to the home and the room where he expected to find Talia's lifeless form. Instead, he was greeted by Talia, filled with life and holding two beautiful babies in her arms. He went directly to the maiden, explaining to her what had occurred, that he was the father of these shining twins and that he was overjoyed. Their friendship was knitted with tighter bonds, and the king stayed with his new lover for a few days and nights so that he might learn more of what she had to offer him. When the king left, yet again promising to return, he left with their names tingling on his lips, Sun, Moon, and Talia. Sun, Moon, and Talia. It was this whispering, which would pour out of him as he slept at night, that caused his wife to act. Back in his realm, she'd begun to fear a mistress when her husband's hunting trip was delayed, but now she knew for sure. She called for the secretary. Listen to me, my son. You are living between two rocks, between the post and the door, between the poker and the grate. If you will tell me with whom the king, your master and my husband, is in love, I will give you treasures untold. And if you hide the truth from me, you will never be found again, dead or alive." The young man trembled in fear and salivated with greed. He told the queen every detail of his master's affair, calling bread bread and wine wine. The queen did not weep. She did not yell. Instead, she calmly sent the secretary to find Talia. He was to deliver the message that the king wanted to see his children and that she should dispatch them at once into the secretary's care. Talia was overjoyed. Off the children went with the servant, and so the queen hatched her plan. She took the crying children to the palace cook and demanded that he butcher the babies and prepare them in a few dishes for her husband to enjoy at dinner. Perhaps a nice plum sauce, she suggested before turning on her heels and storming from the room. The cook did not hesitate for a moment. He ran with the twins to his own modest home and begged his wife to hide and care for them. In their place, he prepared two tender lambs in a few dishes for the royal couple, careful to drizzle a sweet plum jam on a particularly tender cut of meat. That night at dinner, the king was absolutely in awe of his cook's work. Between bites, he cried, Why, this is the best food I've tasted in my life. Every bite so tender, so supple. His wife looked at him with a smile. Eat, eat. You are eating of your own, she said. The king narrowed his eyes. I know perfectly well that I'm eating of my own, because you have brought nothing into this house. 
The queen seethed with rage, knowing deep in her heart that this meal of twins was not enough to punish her husband. She sent the secretary back to the country mansion, this time to bring Talia back to the king that missed her so. Talia was beside herself with the news, acquiescing at once to the request of her lord. When Talia arrived, the queen was standing in the path to meet her. Welcome, Madam Busybody. You are a fine piece of goods, you ill-weed, who are enjoying my husband. So, you are the lump of filth, the cruel bitch that caused my head to spin? Change your ways, for you are welcome in purgatory, where I will compensate you for all the damage you have done me. Talia begged and pleaded with the queen. She explained over and over that the king, her husband, had taken possession of her territory when she was drowned in sleep, and surely this situation was not her fault at all. But the queen was past listening and reason. She grabbed Talia by her hair and dragged the young girl into the courtyard of the palace. There, she bid servants to build a massive bonfire to throw this disgusting wretch of a girl into. You feel such heat for my husband, like a cat crying in the barn for breeding? Well, I will show you heat, little girl. Talia wept and begged, but quickly crafted a plan to save herself. She asked the queen if she might please take off her clothes so that the beautiful gold, gems, and pearls attached to her garments might be spared from the blaze. At this point, the queen's eyes flashed with greed and she quickly agreed to the girl's proposition. Talia undressed as slowly as she could manage and with every garment she removed, she let out a loud scream. Robe? A scream, skirt, a wail, bodice, a cry, and by the time she was down to her shift, her throat cracked with effort. The secretary and queen began dragging her to the bonfire, the queen describing all the things the girl's ash might be used for within her household. Having heard the screams, the king burst forth into the courtyard and demanded to know what was occurring in his palace. The queen spoke and condemned her husband's treachery, telling him with a hateful grin that he'd eaten his own children, the one thing he truly desired. At a dinner, he dabbed his lips with a napkin as their lifeblood dripped from his chin. Alas, then I myself am the wolf of my own sweet lambs, cried the king. Alas, and why did these my veins not know the fountains of their own blood? You renegade bitch, what evil deed is this which you have done? Begone, I will not send such a tyrant-faced one to the Colosseum to do her penance. With that, he demanded the queen, his treacherous secretary, and the murderous cook all be thrown into the very bonfire Talia narrowly escaped. The cook threw himself to the king's knees, pleading with the monarch to believe the truth of the tale, that he'd saved the precious babies and they were carefully tended to even now by his loving wife. 
The king was quickly taken by a hopeful joy and sent for the cook's wife, and only when he held the twins and Talia in his arms, and the queen was forced to witness the king's joy with his new family, only then he sent the traitorous woman into the bonfire. The king made the cook a chamberlain for his bravery. He married Talia and never tired of kissing the heads of each of his loves. Sun, moon, and Talia, he would repeat, punctuating with his affection. And that just goes to show, those whom fortune favors find good luck even in their sleep. I want to start off by saying in that version of the story, I specifically kept quotes from the translation I read of the original work. For example, those whom fortune favors find good luck even in their sleep, or uh, the way the queen describes her as Madame Busybody, calling her a lump of filth and a cruel bitch, and the way that Talia pleads that she was taken while drowned in sleep. And perhaps most importantly, the way the king's rape of Talia is described as him gathering the first fruits of love. Mm. I think it is important to include those because it shows a lot about the perspective of the author and the time that it was written. And I also want to highlight that this book was written for children. Right. It, it's it's so, so much darker than the Disney version we show to children today. In fact, the only real similarities are the connection with a spindle, not even the hay, but the spindle. The fact that there are fairies who help out the main character and then sleep, except in this version, she's actually dead. She's not asleep. So so there are actually a couple places that some of the elements from this version of the story, from the Disney version, many of the versions might have come. There is a French collection of romance stories called, pardon my English, Persephorest. It was composed between 1330 and 1334, and the characters dramatically differ, but it includes both unconscious rape and enchanted sleep. And then if you go back even further, some people link Sleeping Beauty to the 13th century Icelandic legends in the Volsinga saga. This was a collection mm -hmm. of epic poems that tell many of the historic and cultural events from the migration period that happened in Central Europe from 400 to 880. In that story, there are sleeping maidens, briars of thorns, and abandoned mm. castles. And then another interesting source in Sleeping Beauty, the name Aurora, which was not in this version, actually comes from Tchaikovsky's ballet titled Sleeping Beauty in which the female lead is called Aurora. Because mm, isn't there also a version where her name is Briar Rose? There, Yes, there definitely is. There are a lot of versions in which the story has been made for more family-friendly, uh, but I specifically wanted to tell this version because when 
I hear about the Disney movie, this is where my brain goes. Right. And I think that it's interesting to see the way we have adapted stories based on our needs. Many scholars believe that this story, Sun, Moon, and Talia, was actually instruction for daughters and parents. Come again? Yeah. Okay. So the idea is that death-like passivity takes one to sexual maturity, and then that same passivity is rewarded with a rich husband and children. And then, of course, some people reference the idea that the father is desperately trying to keep his daughter away from the world and keep her from a bloody curse that happens when she reaches sexual maturity. I don't know if I... how I feel about that. (laughs) But but I read it in a few places and thought it was worth considering. (laughs) Yeah, it's worth mentioning whether, you know, we can't know for sure. I... I... Uh, I do believe in the idea of it being sort of an instructional story for daughters as much as I hate that. And it's just a reflection of different times and the different values we teach our children. I mean, you look at the Disney version. I, I, and actually, I would argue the Disney version doesn't even really have a lesson. Mm. Well, Be hopeful, the, be kind. The Disney version is a big part of the Disney Renaissance's princess culture. Right. And a lot of those movies, yeah, be kind is a big theme, be sweet, all of that. Yeah, I grew up with my mother being like, I don't like The Little Mermaid because she's she's bratty and then does whatever she wants and gets her own way. And so I grew up like being pushed to watch Mulan and um, Beauty and the Beast because she's like, Mulan's tough and strong and, and Belle likes to read and is really kind. And so that's that's kind of the, the mindset I grew up with. But my dad loved The Little Mermaid. He was like, go off, explore the world. <laughs> Many people do. It was. It's just my mom has always been again. I mean, more than any other, The Little Mermaid has been the one that she's the most frustrated by because she's like, I don't, I don't like the lesson it teaches you. Mm. Which she raised five daughters, so I think she had to be careful about <laughs> what lessons we learned. <laughs> Good point. Oh, I also want to include a quote from the Orlando Sentinel. Okay. Children's literature wouldn't become popular until the late 17th century, and Charles Perrault, that's the later version of Sleeping Beauty, was providing stories for the French aristocracy in Parisian literary salons and providing modifications to the narratives to promote his belief in the superiority of the ruling nobility and the nation's Roman Catholic Church. I wanted to include that because that's the second iteration that I mentioned. And you see again Mm -hmm. that he modified the story to specifically appeal to the audience. Oh, it's just something we see in a lot of stories that I, I mean, there is no such thing as a reliable narrator because all of these stories are built for their times and for specific audiences. And that is a perfect example of it here. Yeah, and the idea being that it children's literature wasn't profitable for a mm-hmm. long time. And of course books are expensive. I-, I remember taking a history class in high school 
where we watched an entire documentary that said the printing press is the single invention that changed human history the most because it made information easy to disseminate. So if previously people were spending years and years and years handwriting out books, why are they going to handwrite out books for children to enjoy at bedtime? Right. And that's why so many stories were told orally. And so you'd only hear them. And it's also why we've we've lost so many tales because only the ones that are written down survived, but it was a great effort to write them down. Right. When I wrote this version of the story, I originally wrote it with Talia having dialogue. And then I went back and read the original and realized that she never speaks in her own story. Oh, I didn't even notice that. So I specifically took out the dialogue I had written. I went back and plugged in the translations that I read and gave them to the other characters. And I made the choice to give the old spinning woman dialogue rather than Talia. And that just speaks to her lack of agency in the entire story. I think that's a really important part of this story. And it's a lot of what I saw when I have read and watched different versions of Sleeping Beauty that are even more modern. I mean, name name one major character trait of Sleeping Beauty from the Disney movie, the most modern one that we have. Tracy, she's beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, even in even I don't I don't know if you saw it. I don't even think I've seen it. The Maleficent movie. Does she have a personality in that one? Yeah, she's willful in that one. And I think in the original Disney, if I'm remembering it correctly, she's also supposed to be willful because she constantly is trying to go out into the forest and the fairies don't want her to. Mm, I'm not the most familiar with that particular Disney version because, again, I always choose the dark ones. But yeah, it was it was never my favorite Um I just didn't, I didn't find a lot to connect with it. I love a good Disney movie, but I really like going back to the source material. And that will probably happen again on this podcast because there is a lot of good source material. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Speaking of The Little Mermaid. (laughs) (laughs) That one's a really good one. That, That is a very, very different origin. I call dibs. I don't even know when we'd use that for an episode, but I'm dibbing it out. Dibs. Shotgun. (laughs) I'm just kidding. We can duke it out later. I also know which episode it would go in, and you're going to... Well, you gave me Tiamat, so Ah! I'll give you The Little Mermaid. I probably won't want it by the time we do it. I'll have read something else. (laughs) Let's be honest. So true. Oh, no. All right. Well, now that we are stuck in an environment where sloth is in some ways necessary and in some ways very important and in some ways also destructive how do you Mm -hmm. feel about it just the subject in general i think we've come to a place as a society where we see sloth really differently i think when you see someone sitting around you know, not interested in participating in anything, you go more towards 
are they suffering from depression? And if so, that's a valid reason to not feel able to do things while you're working through it. For me, personally, I've started thinking of sloth as someone who isn't willing to try to fix those problems. So if there's a deeper reason, whether it's fear of failure or passive-aggressive communication, depression, causing what could be considered laziness or sloth, and you recognize that and choose not to take the actions to fix it, for me, that's the sin. That's the part that is, I don't want to say unforgivable because it's not unforgivable, but that's where the problem comes in. It can feel pretty unforgivable when you're in a moment of frustration. (laughs) Yes. What about you? What are your thoughts? I am someone who always has to be busy and I feel deep guilt when I'm not. So I, I don't know if I have cohesive thoughts yet, but I will say after we record this podcast, I am going to channel my inner sloth and relax for a bit. You deserve it. (laughs) I uh, am going to take a moment, a little time to hang out and relax. (laughs) Good. You, you deserve it. You're the hardest working person I know. Back at you, champ. Aww. All right. Thanks. Hey, Tracy. Yeah. Tell me something good. Okay, so I have two things this week. The first one is that Taylor Ash, who is our amazing composer who did all the music you hear in our podcast, she's also really into fitness. So I reached out to her and she does this thing where she'll create a customized fitness plan for you. And she Ooh. did that for me. It's awesome. It kicked my butt. I am so sore, and I did it today. I did so many squats that walking up the stairs to come to my podcast loft was a challenge. And it's not even the next day. It's the same day that I did the squats. Ooh, I want to talk to her about that. It's awesome. So she fully personalized it to whatever equipment I have. Um, Because I have a lot of stairs in my townhouse, because it's narrow and tall, Um, she incorporated that in, so I have to run from the basement to the loft as part of my cardio. Cool. Um, So it's just given me really good motivation to feel good about myself again and to start getting back into exercising, which I just stopped doing. The other one is that the day that we're recording this is my good, dear friend Tim's 30th birthday. So he... I usually refer to him as my brother-in-law because it's just an easier way to frame it but he's actually I mean, my sister's boyfriend he, <laughs> he i mean he is like they're they talk about getting married and they're very very close so it's easier to describe him as like my, my brother-in-law than it is as just my friend or my sister's boyfriend all that to say it's his birthday and he's stuck in quarantine so what we're doing is because D is his favorite thing in the entire world aside from horror movies they're probably equal if not D&D a little higher. Um, we are having a horror-themed D&D session to celebrate his birthday with all of our friends. That sounds so fun. I wish I'm I could excited. be there. Ugh. I'm so excited. It's, Can you um, tell me what character you're playing? Yeah, so it's in an established campaign. So it is my human barbarian named Vic, who is very dumb and just wants to be a, a big hero and hits things with her giant hammer um and she's also only like four feet tall and so if anyone ever calls her small it just sets off her temper and she starts (laughs) attacking them 
That's so funny. I just built a half-elf barbarian for a campaign I'm in because my other character died. Mm. Um, and she is a six-foot-tall, 160-pound hottie of muscle, and she's just a meat shield. I, she's just my party's run-in first. Oh, yeah. Get beat up champion. The two characters in my main groups um, are both... I call them my redheaded babies because they're both redheaded. But Mine's redheaded one, too. Yeah. I have Vic, my dumb barbarian who's a meat shield, who's really stupid but happy about everything. And then Phaedra, my was once evil, has now shifted to true neutral alchemist, um, who's just a bitch and I love her. And my group like now relies on her for a lot of things, which has become it's it's nice to play a mean character that people still like, you know? I recently read an entire article about how to play an evil aligned character in a campaign and still have it be fun for everyone. And I feel like you are really good at that. Thank you. It's really fun. Um, Do you think she's ever going to convert to being good? No. No. (laughs) No. Um, But I got the whole group to bust out laughing when I was talking about another character. And I was like, I had her say, like, well, you know, they're not as warm as I am. And the whole group lost it. So that's my other, my my evil baby. But tonight's campaign is the one with Vic. It's the one that my friend Casey runs. It is all homebrew. And she does just the best job at storytelling and bringing in people. And the more you give her for backstories, the more she engages with it. And it's just the most heartfelt experience. Um, and then Tim actually runs a horror campaign that we play every week. And that I've one is the, the one that Phaedra's in. to get a hold of Tim and very humbly ask him if he would let me play an NPC of his for one session. Because I want to see your guys' really amazing game. He talks about it so passionately. So I'm going to He, he to already said yes. I already him. asked. Really? Yeah, I asked. He said yes. Absolutely. Anytime. Oh, my God. Yes. Oh, that makes me so happy. <laughs> He'll even make the character for you so you don't have to worry about it. I'll have as long to as you tell them what you're interested in. Brush up on my Pathfinder because I play 5e, but I am so ready. Yeah, <sighs> we brought um, Emily's sister Rachel into our last session, and she was in. Um, and Tim, when we say you were going to play an NPC, he makes you a fully fleshed out character sheet, and you are in combat with us and everything. Like you're not Squee! just. A... <laughs> so, um, that's my something good. I I love D and D and playing with my friends, so I'm very excited to do it. So, Rowan. Yeah. Tell me something good. So today, I had a video call Mm -hmm. with a friend of mine, and we have started doing FaceTimes over the last few weeks, Mm -hmm. and FaceTiming with her is one of the few video calls that doesn't take energy from me it always Mm -hmm. makes me feel fueled and it's because she's a very close family friend of mine and she's 13 and I think it is just so cool that she wants to hang out with me at all (laughs) that's the best feeling she is the most interesting patient caring emotionally intelligent human being I have ever known and she teaches me so much I love hanging out with her and I'm every time we have our weekly call I'm just giddy that she 
thinks I'm cool enough to <laughs> devote any of her time to. <laughs> that's awesome. Right. That's, I mean, she's family feeling. at this point, but also, you know, you don't I mean, always like, get... My nephews don't want to have anything to do with me. I mean, they're one year and then the other one's two and a half. So, like, you know... They're mooping still. around. They're, <laughs> they're little. I'm not the most fun aunt. Um, I have a lot to compete with. I feel really lucky. I have a lot of friends and kind of extended adopted family that are of all ages. Mm-hmm. I hang out with a lot of people that are older than me. And now I have someone who I hang out with who's a lot younger than me. And I think it definitely makes me a much better person. Absolutely. I mean, just having nephews has made me a much better person. Um, I just love those boys with everything I have. And I was always someone who was really kind of nervous around kids because I'm the youngest. I've never really learned how to be around children. And I don't have that natural instinct when it comes to children. Right. And between my amazing younger cousins who I adore and my nephews, I've figured it out a little bit more. Um, And it's just shown me like how much your heart can just grow with love when someone new enters it. I found out the other day that I have no idea how to change a diaper. Oh, I'm good at that now. I know how to do it in theory, but I've certainly never done it. I don't think. God, every time I say that, I doubt myself, but I'd be very intimidated if anybody handed me a baby that needed their (laughs) diaper change. I used to be like, don't hand me a baby. And then when my first nephew was born... I held him for the first time and just started crying. And I was shocked. I was so afraid. Truthfully, I was afraid I was going to hold him and be like, oh, God, I don't connect with this kid at all. Like, it's just a baby. And instead, I held him and just started crying out of nowhere. To be clear, I like babies. I just know about as much of what they need as I know about a lizard, which is none. No, I completely agree. And I, I, I didn't even really like babies that much. I was just freaked out by them. And now with my nephew, it's like it got to the point where my sister lived, my sister and her husband lived with my parents for a couple months after he was born. And I was still living with my parents at the time. And so I just got real comfortable. I would just strap that baby to my chest with like this little baby carrier and walk around and changing his diaper all the time. I was like one of the few people who could actually get him to fall asleep. And um, I feel like we really should have put the baby discussion in the goddesses of creation episode. (laughs) Yes, we can. <laughs> <laughs> so next week, we are going to be exploring flood myths, mm-hmm. which is really interesting because last week we had a lot of flood factor going on. Sure did. So I'm looking forward to seeing how this goes. I look forward to when you tell me what story you're doing because you always do that before I do. <laughs> so... That'll be good. That will be good. And I'm excited to figure out what story I'm going to do. All right. So thanks for joining us for the Willing and Fable podcast. And we... Oh, right. We have a catchphrase. (laughs) Oh, my God. Oh, God. (laughs) I'm losing it. Tracy, I'm going to need you to do the end instead. Thank you all so much for listening. We're going to wrap it up here. But remember, stories grow in the telling. 
So if you like what we're doing, tell a friend. Or tell a foe. And we'll see you soon, okay? Thank you so much for joining us for the Willing and Fable podcast. This episode was written and produced by Tracy Harrison and Rowan Hall. That's me. Our music was written and performed by Taylor Ash, and our logo is by Jamie Harrison. If you ever want to watch or read what we're reading, head over to willingandfable.com for our show notes, or find us at Willing and Fable on Twitter and Instagram to join the discussion. We hope you'll rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite listening source. And of course, join us next time for another round of ancient myths, local legends, and stories with staying power.